You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! We back. The X-Man Podcast. I'm your host, Doc Coyle. If my voice sounds a little strange, it's because I got back surgery last week. Last Wednesday, went under the knife. My first real surgery. I don't know if getting your wisdom teeth taken out counts as surgery. I had that done 2005. I went under. So maybe, I guess that's surgery. But this is, I guess, a little more, you know, getting up in my back. But it was fairly uh non-invasive or least invasive surgery you can get it was outpatient i was in and out the same day but it did put me under and it was quite nerve-wracking i'm not gonna lie guys you know because people can when they put you under anesthesia you can you can die and it actually happened to kanye west's mother when she had plastic surgery but the reason why my voice is jacked up is i guess they intubated me during the procedure as well. And so like my uvula, you know, it's basically the little punching bag in the back of your throat is all beat up and elongated and swollen. So it actually makes it weird to talk (laughs) and eat. I was at Starbucks the other day trying to order something and, you know, it was difficult for him to understand me. A little annoying. But anyway, I was been trying to get the surgery for a while and, you know, my insurance had denied it at first and made me kind of run through some hoops, jump some hoops, but eventually they said yes. And I got it done. And, you know, it's pretty early goings, basically did the surgery and you're all hopped up on the anesthesia and all the medication. So that first day and a half, I was very loopy, (laughs) you know, under the influence of painkillers and muscle relaxers. It's not really a great feeling because of all these side effects, dry mouth and weird, you have to pee every five minutes. It wasn't, it wasn't a great feeling, but we're going to see how it goes. But hopefully, you know, this stuff has been going on for a long time with with my back, but I'm all jacked up. I got knee problems, neck problems, but the, the back was the big thing. And literally it would make touring almost unbearable sometimes. And I had gotten my back to a pretty good shape before Bad Wolf started touring in 2018. And we just toured so much that year over the course of the year, just my, it slowly broke down. And literally, my I had a back injury on the day of the wedding band show in March. You know, the band I have with the Metallica guys, you know what I'm saying? 
Whitfield Crane, shout out, and John Theodore on drums, yes. And so, and that was really a result of being on tour for a month in Europe, then flying to South Carolina, working. So it's just something that I always have to deal with. So we'll see how it goes. But because of that, there's really not much to report. You know, your boy been holding it down with the, with the pure laziness. I've started watching, binging this show, The Crown on Netflix. I don't know if you guys know about this, but it's about the royal family going back to when Queen Elizabeth first gets in there when she's a young woman. Palace Intrigue. I love it. So well done. Shout out to the people that make The Crown. Some good stuff in the second season, you know. And then also watch The New Mutants. Terrible. Don't watch it. It's a bad movie. I did it. But yeah, when you're when you're just hopped up on on stuff <laughs> and trying to relax, it's, it's hard to get stuff done. So hopefully I'm I'm gonna get back to being productive this week. And that starts with the show. But before we get into the interview with our guest, Kim Kelly, check out this message from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, my name's Scott Bowling. I have a YouTube show called Good Company with Bowling. What's up, this is Clint Lowry from Seven Dust. Hey, what's up, this is Sonny Mayo. Hey, Ricky Rackman. And you're watching Good Company with Scott Bowling. I've interviewed bands like Limp Bizkit, Fozzie, Seven Dust, Korn. I've had Chris Farley's brother, Tom Farley, on the show. My show is kind of like a modern day Wayne's World. If you love a good interview, a good rock interview, or just any kind of interview, please, if you get a chance, check out my show, Good Company, with both. You gotta love that theme song. Yeah, go head over to YouTube and check out Scott's show, Good Company. Just, you know, you guys know how to use the search bar. Scott with two T's, bowling like the excellent sport. And yeah, he the thing that's cool about his show is it's very professional, very well done. He gets great guests. We kind of share some of the same guests. Jose Mangan, who's been on this show, has been on his show. Rich Ward from Fozzie and Stuck Mojo has been on his show. And he's just a really cool dude. And guess what? He sponsored the show, and you guys apparently made such a dent over there. They didn't want to sponsor the show again. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Scott. Go check it out, X-Men fans. And if you would like to sponsor the show, if you have a brand or a band, you want a song played on here, hit me up. Drop in the DMs. Slide in them DMs. Say, yo, sup, Doc? What's up with them sponsorships? Or send me an email to the X-Man podcast at gmail.com. Remember, that's EX. Oh, one other thing. X-Man t-shirts. I have six left. Literally, I have six left. I think I have five XL, one double X. My apologies for the lack of variety. But if you want one of those, I don't think I'm going to print them again. So I think that's it. So if you want one, go over to .coil.net. Pick up one of those damn shirts. Alrighty. Enough with trying to sell you guys crap. We have a guest this week. Her name is Kim Kelly, total badass, someone I've known in the music industry for a long time and someone I've had my my mind on to get on the show for quite some time. But I'll be honest, I was like almost worried if I was, you know, I wasn't big time enough for her <laughs> anymore because she's really gone to to flourish as uh, a journalist, you know, and, and an opinion writer and activist. 
uh, kind of left wing issues. She's you'll hear she's self described as an anarchist, uh, and she's uh, an anti fascist and all this stuff. And but I you know I, I met her when she was working primarily in music world and metal world, and she wrote for Vice. And so it's like kind of like me, someone who's in the music world, in the metal world, but also has all these really deep interests in politics. And she's really in the game, you know, and she writes for Teen Vogue, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on, but I don't think she needs any more introduction. Please check out this conversation with the awesome and talented Kim Kelly. Okay, making some tea, um, avoiding doing work, avoiding doing errands. So, classic Thursday in quarantine. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm, uh, I, had, I had one of those, you know, because sometimes I'll like do some stuff early and then I'm like, all right, this stuff I'm going to do later. And then, you know, when you start doing something like seven, eight o'clock at night and you're like, yeah, I'm going to get it done. And then you just hit a wall and you're just like, oh, I would. Dude. So I'm a night owl. I get I do basically all my writing between about midnight and three to five a.m. So daytime, I'm just chilling most of the time. Yeah. No, like. I don't listen. I've done some of my best. I've done some of my best stuff. Believe it or not, kind of jacked up. You know, like you know, you know, like the great writers of old. You know, just you know. <laughs> <laughs> I grow chaos vampire energy. That's basically what I go for. Dude, I, sometimes you know the the getting to the emotional core of something you're when you're less inhibited sometimes it, it happens. Yeah. and late at night nobody's on twitter so there's no distractions <laughs> well anyway i just want to thank you so much for for, for doing this you someone that's been on my mind for 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 quite some time but you know as your career has kind of progressed you it's become from my end increasingly more intimidating actually kind of <laughs> want to bring you on because you've become what I would put in the category of serious people. You're a serious person. Yeah. I mean, I mean, right now you you, know, you seem really, really relaxed and cool, but, but, you know, by, you know, the way you write the subject matter you tackle, this is not uh, light stuff or, or seemingly not something that you take really seriously and stuff that you consider very to be very important. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely less fun than I used to be. <laughs> I wouldn't say I've been, well, I guess I was never really that much fun, depending on how you feel about heavy metal and various topics within the genre. Um, yeah, it is funny making a switch from like being a metal journalist, metal critic, metal, metal guy to like something that kind of encompasses a few more multitudes. Oops, sorry, I turn that timer off. I'm making tea. Because <laughs> I'm also a boring old lady. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I sort of, it's so funny that we've never actually met before. I feel like we should have at this point. What are you talking to, about? I mean, like, met. I mean, I know we've, like, met, but, like, actually, like, sat down and talked and hung out. Well, I we've, feel like. We've hung out. Here's, all right, so here's my, my memory because I, I feel like there are certain people you can't, you have, you have friends that you literally can't remember when you met. You just like, oh, yeah. all, they're just like, Osmosis. yeah, you're just like, how did we end up hanging out? You know? And so to me, my memory is that you were a fixture in this kind of New York, New Jersey metal industry 
amalgamum, you know, uh, of kind of, you know, and, and whatever that was, you know, as I was, uh, you know, get, get things were happening, God forbid. And, you know, and it was, it was a community, you know? Yeah. And, and so there was a collection of people that you, they were just characters in this <laughs> community. In the grand drama. But what was funny, I was thinking, I was like trying to think, I was like, I was like, what did Kim, like, who did she work for? What was like I had sometimes you would just know people and you were you were cool with them, but you know, and so I, I you know, I looked it up and I guess at the time you were working for Catharsis PR. Is that oh, that was me. That was just yeah. that was just me. Or just you. You are Catharsis yeah, PR. That's my okay. uh, RIP. But yeah, that was my company that I had. It's so funny, like since I'm doing what I do now, like doing journalism in a sort of a different realm, I've had this whole other life in metal that so many people don't even know about. Yeah. Like so many people I encounter now treat it as like, oh, you're like into metal. That's cool. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm into metal. <laughs> like, oh God, the past 17 years I've met nothing. No, well, well, no, listen, I can, I can identify as someone who's, you know, in, in many ways before my current band, Bad Wolves took off, I kind of thought my path would lead towards kind of multimedia stuff because I started to have success um, as doing freelance and you know, my, I, put, I started a podcast that you know seemed to take off pretty well, and I felt like I had all these talents in those areas. But I felt like being known for one thing, in a sense, can, feels like a hindrance in terms of being taken seriously in other realms. It can feel very limiting, like especially <laughs> in my experience coming from being like a metal guy, like metal chick. You're, oh, you write about metal, like all that crazy stuff. You you want you're pitching me a story about what? Like, I really was only able to sort of make that shift in a meaningful way uh, when I was at Vice, when I started getting involved in labor writing, because we unionized our workplace. And mm -hmm. I was like very, in, in, I was very involved in that process. And that sort of, I kind of feel like I had to give myself permission to reach towards something different, to like kind of take hold of that credibility that I felt had been eluding me by that point. And the fact that I had actually done something and physically been part of organizing and bargaining and dealing with contracts, doing all the nitty gritty stuff, it gave me kind of a leg to stand on. So instead of just being that chick with like, oh yeah, she has like a goat tattoo and she writes about black metal or whatever. It's like, okay, she does that, but she might actually know what she's talking about. That's kind of, that was kind of the springboard to me doing the stuff I'm doing now. I had to kind of earn it in a way that doesn't, maybe it's not entirely fair, but I feel like that's something a lot of people might like sort of, find kinship with well I, I was going to talk a little bit about you know before you kind of made this transition uh you know your life in the community of of of, of heavy metal so was your entry point in doing pr or did, was there something that preceded that okay so yeah pr was like okay so i started started when i was like 15 writing about like writing album reviews for my county newspaper because i was Part of this team. And you're from Jersey, program. right? I'm from Jersey. I'm from the Pine Barrens. By the way, when I when I found that out, I was like, I was like, I'm from New Jersey, but people think New Jersey's one thing. New Jersey's like 50 things. Um, so many things. Oh my god. <laughs> but, but all the thing I think about the Pine Barrens, I'm like, oh yeah, that's where like the Sopranos go to like bury bodies. <laughs> that's that's the only thing that comes to mind. And I think of North Jersey as the place where the Sopranos go to get pizza. Really, it's it's just the great the great uniter. <laughs> Yeah, it's a super rural nature preserve full of like, I don't know, crazy white people's guns, most of whom I'm related to. So that was a fun environment to grow up in. <laughs> but 
literally got into metal really young and I was always a writer. I was that kid. And I had always been writing about it. And like when I was in high school, I wrote for the county paper and for blogs when that like, like old blogs, this is like early 2000s before, you know, anything got shiny and fancy and writing for little zines and stuff. Did blogs ever get shiny and fancy? (laughs) Did I miss this? (laughs) I feel like maybe they got more advertising. (laughs) Maybe that's the case. But I was always a writer. And then um, I started doing, so yeah, high school, then in college, Oh, yeah, I got some internships. That's probably how you started seeing me around because I interned for Metal Maniacs and for Earache and I interned for Relapse in Philly. So, I, and I was doing like a metal radio show on uh, my, my college radio station, WKDU in Philly. So I was kind of doing all these things. And I only started doing PR after college because I was supposed, man, I was, I was you know, I was living in Philly, went to school in Philly, and I was still writing, I was doing all this other stuff. And I was like, I'm going to move to New York City because that's what you do. And I was talking to this PR company. I was like, oh, I'll come. And I was supposed to go work for them. But there were some miscommunications that were not really my fault. And I ended up moving to New York without a job. So I was like, shit, let's try this PR thing. Let's see how this goes. And I did that for like eight years. And it, it went pretty well. And I only really stopped doing it because I got hired at Vice and they were like, you can't be doing this. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'm kind of sick of it. It's a hard job. Let's try this. So it's been a, a winding road. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I connect to that in, in so many different levels just because my experience is, is wanting to be involved in anything independent minded. And the, and the idea of like freelancer or, or starting your own company is this, this thing of, kind of being interested in a bunch of different things and wanting to do all those things kind of at the same time and not all the things like juggling plates like an old-timey vaudevillian just like and in the middle of that i was also touring being a merch person for like a bunch of different bands for like four years straight so that's how i met tons of people across the country and like different people in the industry because i got that facetime because i was selling them t-shirts you know how did you not end up in a band because i just looking at you you look like (laughs) one of those like badass female singers who like can do death metal vocals and like windmills like i could just i could picture that i do still have the hair i know it's okay you basically look the same you haven't aged you know no, i spend a lot of money on skincare and i never learned and i never started smoking but <laughs> yeah i'm still the same right. you know you but send um, me send me some stuff right let me know i mean i'm doing okay i just turned yeah 40, but, you know you're 40 fuck out of here yeah well damn that's okay i'll try to look as good as you when i'm 40 Don't damn, listen. I'm 32 Okay, listen, I'm just, I got, that, I got that melanin. What can I say, all right? Black don't crack. That's what I hear. <laughs> but um, yeah, I never really started a band because I'm not good at anything in that respect. I can, I can, like, I can growl and I can do vocals if I really want to. And it's something that I think you have to commit to and really put in the effort to get good. And I was just always so interested in doing everything else and supporting people who were already good at it. Yeah. Um, I do have... I've done a couple little like secret shitty grindcore projects over the years, just like little things that we put on Bandcamp. We're like, oh, that was fun. We were drunk for most of that. But yeah, it never really, I, and it's funny because I don't mind public speaking. I'm not, I do not mind at all being on stage or talking to hundreds of people. So, but I don't know. It's, I mean, if anyone needs a vocalist, I'm in Philly. Give me a call. <laughs> so you've written so much about, uh, kind of the cross-section between 
I guess we can say identity politics in underground metal, specifically black metal. You know, you talk a lot about... <laughs> I don't know what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> it's very fraught. It's the yeah. best and it's the worst. Well, 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 no, because it's, you know, I'm... You're, like, really deep in the nitty-gritty with some of these environments that, you know, I kind of enjoy peripherally. You know, I've, I've, I came up in, a, in underground scenes, but, you know, when it came to black metal, you know, I'm listening to Jimbo Borgir and I'm listening to Satyricon, but I don't know about some, like, band up on a mountain, you know, that, <laughs> you know, has some, like, you know, reverse Nazi lyrics or something in there. You know, and you, you seem to be ingrained in the community in, in a way that kind of exposed you to some stuff that maybe someone like me wouldn't even know, know about. So, I mean, what, you know, is that kind of something of a, a crusade in terms of like exposing that or like what kind of put your finger on like wanting to get involved on that end of things? So black metal is probably, death metal was my first love in extreme metal, but black metal really captivated me when I was in high school. And I, I came to, Black metal at a point where I was dealing with a lot of really like heavy, difficult family situations with medical problems and stuff with my parents. So I needed something that that could sort of reflect this howling void I was feeling, and black metal was there. So I've always been into it, and I've always been really interested in like the various conflicting ideologies and the aesthetics and the theatrical elements and the various historical, social, political aspects of the genre. But I mean, when I was younger, I'm not going to pretend I came out of the womb, like reading Emma Goldman. I wasn't a super political person until probably I got to college because I was like a white girl growing up in a super white town, very sheltered, pretty ignorant. I didn't, I didn't need to care in that way because I was so sheltered and privileged. And it wasn't until I got to school in Philly where I started meeting more people and started learning more about things like feminism. And like, that's where I started, you know, because I was always like a girl and then young woman in the metal scene and I was always treated differently and sometimes in really you know harmful ways and I was like okay well fuck that but it took me a little while to figure out like okay if I'm feeling ostracized and abused and like dealing with these difficult situations other people who aren't like you know the standard straight white metal dude are probably also dealing with this so it's, it kind of was like a personal and political journey of understanding and learning and realizing what like what the broader issues were and what other marginalized people were dealing with. So my politics were evolving around that same, that same uh, locus. You know, I started just like, like anti-war protests when I was 16, but going from protesting that in like a John Kerry shirt to being like, oh, I'm actually an anarchist. It took some doing. And, and so it's not, and you know, not in terms of crusade, it is funny. I grew up Catholic, so that's a weighted term. But <laughs> I will say, I have not, like, I haven't always been as political as I am now, and I also haven't been as aware and empathetic and educated as I should have been. You know, when I was young, like, earlier on in my career, like, there's plenty of bands that I wrote about or platformed or even worked with in some way that I would never even look at now. And I feel like I kind of owe it to the community and to the genre to kind of obviously take, obviously take accountability for that and kind of try to make it better to like offset the harms that may have inadvertently caused by actively working to make the genre more welcoming, more equitable, more liberation minded. Because like, I think there are a lot of people like me who didn't really start out super political, but then had various awakenings. And I'm hoping that people who haven't had those awakenings yet 
we can get them there because we need them. Yeah, listen, I, there's there, there's so much there. I was reading something you wrote, you know, about uh, going to do an interview with Isan in mm. in, uh, in 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 Norway and kind of relating that somewhat to Asley dying coming back and trying to kind of understand, you know, how how do how do my different values conflict sometimes, right? This idea that that we want to have a justice system that allows people to reform and reenter society, but then all of a sudden you also, especially with Tim's situation, have a situation where, uh, you know, uh, his wife, you know, woman was it was in harm's way, and Isan, you know, it's like this kind of uh, different generations of guilty by association, right? So, you know, and 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 listen, I, and I think these are a lot of these topics are really at the forefront of. I think the primary culture war we're having right now, which is how how do we galvanize around you know what people call cancel culture? You have some people who say, "Oh, cancel culture doesn't even exist," doesn't exist, right? There's that idea, and you know, and then to some people, it's actually the most important kind of culture war point, right? Like it's it's the thing that maybe pushes people from 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 one side to the other so it's listen something I, I think about a lot you know like where i'm i'm you know and and in, in, in many ways even me doing this show right like i'll have maybe some guy that's been accused of something or dumb and i'm like should i have this person on my show am i if i bring them on my show and i don't bring it up am i kind of co-signing you know what i'm saying it's like it just gets really messy mm -hmm. It's thorny, you know? I mean, I'm personally a big fan of deplatforming people that have caused harm and won't take accountability or try to do anything to try and assuage the harm they've caused. People who are interested in any kind of restorative process. You know, I think that the first step towards fixing any of these problems is acknowledging when we've done wrong and when we've hurt people. And so many people are just have a complete inability to even do that. And they just sort of kind of skate by or like, oh, well, some people are upset, but like things are mostly fine. Like that's no way to go to move through the world. I think, I mean, cancel culture is such a funny, it's such a funny thing to have like entered the cultural lexicon and the, the sort of degree that it has. Because I remember that was like a meme a few years ago. Of like that's Yo, cancel. Kanye, Kanye basically created the word, I'd never heard cancel until Kanye used it. Oh, it was, I mean, I feel like it came from Joanne the Scammer. This, like, uh, it's either Vine or YouTube. I don't know, like, this I heard, it was black I heard black Twitter, basically. Oh, it's absolutely, absolute, like, most, you know, cultural, like, <laughs> linguistic movements. Like, everything starts in black Twitter and then gets co-opted and watered down. And then you have Republican politicians talking about being canceled. Like, sir, you make plenty of money and you're an old white guy. You are fine. You're not canceled. You're having a great time. Someone just said, hey, stop being racist, and you got upset. But in terms of, you know, what you're talking about, in terms of, like, using one's platform to elevate or ostracize or uh, confront people who have been accused of causing harm or have, uh, have obviously hurt people, like, I think a lot of it comes down to where your comfort level is personally when it comes to how deeply you want to engage and how hard you want to push back. I think, you know, a lot of, I think people that have more privilege have a lot more of a responsibility to push back because it's a lot easier for us. We have less, you know, systemic forces kind of grinding us down to start with. 
and a lot of it is like our fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I mean, that's something that when I was at Noisy, when I was the, the heavy metal editor there for like five years, I came up against that a lot because like there would be, it's like, okay, here's a band that put out a record and I, I'm pretty sure they're good people and this record is great, but their record label has put out a, like a band with an abuser or a racist or a neo-Nazi. So how does that translate? And by the end of my tenure there, I was just like, you know, anything that is, is tainted in any way, I'm just not going to bother because there are so many other bands who aren't, who are doing things the right way and who are moving, you know, with intention and with integrity. Why bother dealing with a band that's kind of got some like dirty fingerprints on it when you could lift up somebody new who maybe needs it more, you know? Yeah, listen, I think that's, that's tough, you know, because it, it may, for some reason, the way you were talking about there, it made me think of the Scarlet Letter, right? Mm. Like, like the idea of, of labeling the tainted, you know, and, and I think it creates, so I, I have a situation, you know, I, I tell a story, I was at the of, um, Ghost Inside reunion show, and it was like the after party, and Tim Lambesis was there with his, his, his girlfriend, and I, you know, and I just started talking to him, because, you know, just because, you know, I've known Tim for a long time, you know, and I know how complex it is, but I I believe in forgiveness. That's just the way, way I am. But, like, I'm talking to him, and you can literally see the entire room kind of, you know, not looking at us directly or anything, but just being aware of the situation because what people want more than anything is to not get pulled into like I said, that kind of, they don't want any dirt on them. So when you have a situation like that, you become kind of a pariah or you become kind of like a third rail. Like, hey, you know what? Like, you know, whatever's going on with that guy or that person, I don't, I don't want it to affect my thing. So it becomes this like, it becomes a very difficult situation. And I, and I get it like from all angles. Like if you don't want to talk to that person, that's all that's all on you but i'm i'm i've tried for me myself trying not be as fearful of saying okay we the guilty by association i think can go to a little too far my. i think it depends on what the situation is with the particular individual you're talking about yeah he was incarcerated but as we know in this country that doesn't actually mean any rehabilitation has occurred if you know in that situation if this was a person who was being open about what was happening who was being public about taking accountability, who was in therapy, who was working with, you know, charities for violence against women, who was putting in the effort, I think people would be a lot more willing to engage with them. But I think the problem is a lot of times these things happen and then people just sort of hope it'll go away or like shift it on the rug. So they're like, okay, either I'm just not going to fuck with that guy anymore. And then like, that's, that's me done. That was my good deed, but that doesn't help either. You can't just throw people away on a desert Island. So I think, I mean, the responsibility does come down to the people who have caused harm. And I think the fact that, you know, someone like the individual in question is like out and about in the world with his new lady friend, I can see how people would be uncomfortable with that. Because, I mean, if I saw that, I'd be like, well, how do we know, does this guy care? Has he accepted what he has done? Has he accepted the harm he's caused? Or is he just kind of hoping he can coast on the reputation he had beforehand? Like every situation is different, but I think there are commonalities there when it comes to the way that people address 
the issue, the ha- the hurt, and the harm that they have caused. I think there's always a choice with how you deal with these things, and you know it comes down to how someone decides to to take that choice. Yeah, listen, and, and I think we could probably do a whole show just just on that just on that one topic. I want to talk about <laughs> uh, what happened at Vice because they had a mm. series of layoffs, uh, and which is kind of a, a common strain which seems kind of in in new media across the board so many of the you know the sites that i like you know uh, i was a big fan of crack.com you know and they had mm. i think two different series of layoffs that completely kind of undermined a lot of the talent that they had their whole youtube channel now even their podcast isn't even going uh because it got sold and and all this stuff so what exactly happened at Vice with with their layoffs, and this and is this just kind of the fallout of the changing media landscape in terms of you know because I've had so many people you know I'm good friends with Finn McKenty that does a punk punk rock NBA. I remember him, dude. He's killing it. Stuff you will hate, dude. Way the back, the best. Oh my but dude, god, he has one of the biggest um, music. Uh, YouTube's and his his podcast is killing it. Wow. But he was telling me because I haven't written in a while. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know, if you get back, he's like, you should. He's like, you might as well just start a YouTube channel because that's where the eyeballs are. That you can take something that would be a written piece, but then just do it as a as a vlog. And you know, and I, and I'm just like, is it? So is this what we're seeing with things like with Vice? Is this just a reflection of the changing? media landscape or is this just greedy companies so short answer yes (laughs) digital media is an incredibly unstable uh industry to start with it's been i mean since its its birth the powers that be have not figured out how to to monetize it in a way that satisfies them in terms of vice in the 2019 era layoffs which vice wasn't even the only one hit i think about three thousand people were laid off in the media space that year does anyone own vice like a bigger company no well it's so shane smith and sarush alvi and they kicked out gavin mcginnis 10 years ago for being a nazi which see how that one turned out yep um fuck that dude But um, there's also a lot of like investors and venture capital fingers. And like Rupert Murdoch owns a piece of vice. I think Disney owned a piece of vice. It's the, the, there, there have been all these outside investors who have swooped in and tried to kind of capitalize on this cool millennial hit brand. There's not just vice, it happened across the industry. But that bubble burst in part because of the stranglehold that digital publishers like Facebook and Google have on the advertising revenue. Like they have the lion's share of the revenue that happens with any kind oh, wait, of I just ads. want to cut in real quick. There was also that situation where Facebook changed the way they did things, where they wanted to- The pivot to video. That well, pivot, pivot to video. Well, pivot to video, but also how they wanted you to view the content within the Facebook, um, from, they would view it from there as opposed to having a link that takes you mm. from Facebook to your website. And that, that completely changed all the traffic and stuff. Uh, it was a total nightmare. I was still working at Vice when all that happened. So many good people lost their jobs. They invested so much time and energy into the doing the short form video that no one wanted to watch. It was, and that came out a year or so after the Facebook had inflated the numbers and essentially lied to all these publishers saying, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is the future. And they're like, well, actually that didn't work out. So we're going to lay off more people. It's, a, it's an incredibly volatile situation. And obviously there's a bunch of rich people at the top that do not 
value the labor of the people who are actually creating the the content that they sell. I mean, in my layoff in 2019, February, 250 people got got. 250 people in one day. Was that all in New York or was that kind of spread out? I think it was spread out a little bit, but over, I think about 160 people in my office, Wow! which is, I wasn't even in the office at the time. I was, uh, <laughs> I was in Atlanta cause on a, it was like my day off and me and my boyfriend went down there because there was supposed to be a big clan rally. So we went down to be part of the effort to oppose that. And in the middle of all that, I got a call from vice HR being like, bye. Like, I see. How you get fired on your day off? <laughs> <laughs> right. Fucking rude. Many levels of rudeness there, but yeah, vice is a mess. And it's, I, I really feel for my friends who are still there and I feel for my friends who aren't there anymore. And I have nothing but hatred in my heart for the people at the top. But the one thing that I am so glad that we managed to do before I left was, you know, we built up a really strong union and we were on, by the time I got laid off, we were on our second union contract, which had instituted a lot of really important workplace uh, workplace rules and also salary floors because in that kind of industry usually it's people who are more marginalized black folks people of color queer people and women who are paid the least because they're valued the least because it's still like a rich white boy from nyu kind of game so we instituted these salary floors so that everyone every incoming hire had to be paid at least this amount mm-hmm. and at that time it's kind of funny i was uh me and one other person on my team both women were uh the lowest paid editors in the entire company. So I would have gotten a big ass raise if I had not been laid off. A little bitter about that. So (laughs) how does the, so is that kind of a reflection of maybe the union being somewhat ineffectual if they were able to, to fire that, so many people or you guys didn't have no no no, no. unions don't prevent layoffs that's not something that can happen but what unions do in that context is they provide support for people that do get laid off like for example the our union lawyers looked over everyone's severance agreement and they cut through all the mumbo jumbo and actually they got a lot of people a lot more money than they were originally going to give us and that support is you know it's been critical because when you get a call it's like okay your job's gone and you're just like oh shit, I live in Brooklyn. How am I going to pay my rent? Having someone you can call and be like, oh my God. And they're like, we got you. That is a huge morale booster at the very least. So yeah, without the union, I would have left years ago, but that became kind of a, my baby. And then that kind of turned into my career. So what, what would you say is your, I guess, political, you know, how would you identify yourself p- politically? Oh, I'm an anarchist, anti-fascist. Sure. Anarchist, anti-fascist, are you, because you've, you know, you'll use, I'll see some stuff in your Twitter and you'll be like, comrade, like, are you, are you into communist or communism adjacent or is it? Anarchism. That, I'm an anarchist. That, anarchism okay. is not communism. Okay. I'm just, they're I'm two, just checking. They're, they're two different ideologies, but they are frequently confused because there's a lack of political education in the U.S. Yeah. Well, so no, listen, I think, um, in, in many ways, it's like a, it's like a four leaf clover, right? Because uh, you hear, you know, the, even the word Antifa, right? In the same way, like we talk about cancel culture, right? It becomes a buzzword. It becomes a totem that's often used by people who represent the antithesis to that. And then mm-hmm. they stereotype it. They make it something cartoonish. And the truth is, I don't, 
I don't know many people who would, who would say they're part of that. So that's why it's really valuable to, to, to speak with someone who actually is in, in, involved with that. I mean, can you kind of just give, you know, the most kind of basic breakdown of, of what anti-fascism means to you? Yeah, I mean, to it's, it's kind of right there in the name, right? To be anti-fascist is to oppose fascism. You know, there's a variety of tactics that people use. It's not all just uh, dealing with street actions and confrontations. A massive part of anti-fascist work is finding out information on local Nazis and making that information public. A lot of that is warning the community about the monsters within their midst. A lot of that is trying to disrupt fascist organizing. A lot of that is trying to build community that is explicitly anti-fascist. You know, if you have ever... So if you're, if you're a person who can't make it to a protest and your friend can, but they need someone to watch their kids, you watching their children, that's an anti-fascist act because you're enabling someone to go out and fight fascism in their way. It's, it's a much broader set of tactics, a much broader ideology than it is broken down to. It's not just like, oh, a band I don't like is playing. Let me make a phone call. That's yeah. one specific tactic that makes metalheads very upset. But it's, it's, it's a huge world, and it's a movement that dates back to the 30s. There are so many ways to be an anti-fascist. And I think most people, most people who are on the left, or even liberal, are more anti-fascist than they really realize, because there's so little you know, accurate reporting on the ideology, because it gets turned into this big, scary boogeyman, where, in fact, it's kind of the bare minimum for being a decent person. Or... Um... Do you agree with that it's more of an idea and mindset than it is like an organization? Is It's not that, an organization. That's like yeah. an insane right way. There's no meetings. There's no, there's no <laughs> secret meetings. Well, <laughs> well, here's the deal. Like there are groups of anti-fascists that work together, yeah. but it's like, there's no, there's no, like you don't have an anti-fascist membership card. It's not a party. It's not like a, it's not like DSA or whatever. Like yeah. it's just, it's a way of seeing the world and it's a way of wanting to fight for what you think is good in the world. Well, directly relating to that, the way I kind of was illuminated to you be, being, being kind of like, you know, a big shot in, the, in this, <laughs> In the in the world of activism and, and, and journalism was during Charlottesville because mm. you were there mm -hmm. and you were one of the people providing uh, real time accounts of what was going down and I you know and this is I mean Charlottesville I think is an inflection point for our country as a whole it, it was this this real kind of I mean even Joe Biden says that you know Donald Trump's response to that was the moment that inspired him to run um and i think it's it's one of unlike i think some of the i think the the protest movements that happened over the summer things just got murkier and there was just so much more going on where charlottesville to me seemed so it 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 did it was not muddy at all it seemed right and wrong right you know what i'm saying in terms of how these things play out it, it's hard to get much more cut and dry when it's like on one side, here's a bunch of Nazis. And on the other side, here's a bunch of people who would like them to go away. <laughs> I, I can, do, you think, do you think the, uh, the Unite the Right rally would have happened if Hillary Clinton was the president? Do you, or do you think it was a direct response to feeling emboldened by a president that, they, that created an environment that said, you know what? We're on the come up. Let's come out of the shadows. I mean, that, I mean, some of that might be subtext and, you know, and even 
obviously the the vice piece on charlottesville mm. was probably the one piece of media that i think all most of us saw and kind of were were moved by in terms of like mm. wow this is kind of a big deal i mean i don't know mm. I, I can't say that video <laughs> what, what did you hate hate about it I mean, they spent the entire time platforming a bunch of neo-Nazis instead of the people that were there to resist them. They gave yeah. them a platform. Well, pos- listen, I hear that, but I think, I don't think, I think for someone like me, if I didn't see that, I wouldn't even know those people exist. Really? And you're I- a black man. Like, you're, de- you're dealing with this world. Like- well, let, let's, let, let's, here, let's keep, here's, honestly, here's how I identify myself. I identify myself as a biracial person. I'm black mm. and I'm white. Okay. And guess what? No one knows who the fuck I am. Motherfuckers don't know if I'm Arabian or motherfucking <laughs> Mexican or fuck, people think I'm ja- Japanese. I've heard everything. Some, pe- some people think, pe- just think I'm white. Some people think I'm black. I'm, I have, you know, I said this, I have light privilege, right? Which me and I have this ability to kind of navigate through any environment in, 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 I wouldn't say invisibly, but innocuously, right? Like, um, and because I grew, I grew up in this, in an urban environment, but I went to private schools. And when you're biracial, you get to learn all of the cultural shorthands for multiple environments. So that means I can be a chameleon and a lot of, you know, and I, I think, you know, the idea of, I think, wokeism in general is this idea of awareness, right? It's this idea that something was always there. You just weren't attuned to it, right? But I think the, the world also, for whatever you're into, becomes a Rorschach test for your biases. And so whatever you want to see, you will see, Right. If you mm. want to see racism everywhere, you will find it. If you want to not believe racism doesn't exist at all, you can tune yourself to ignore. You can put the blinders on. So, it's- so I think it goes always. And, and, and so I think, A, I've pretty much grown up in metropolitan, diverse environments that, dude, I grew up in, the, I feel like you grew up in the 80s and like early 90s, you pop culture told you racism didn't exist. It was like the Cosby show and like <laughs> Michael Jackson and everyone's like, you know, it's like Merton Riggs, leak the weapon. Their best friends are killing bad guys. Right. I like grew up in this. And like I said, because I grew up in a biracial family, it was like, I grew up with this idea that racism was something we used to deal with. Right. Mm. And then I feel like the, the experiences I had, it was very rarely direct to me like i've had experiences we were on tour with hate breed dude this is back-to-back nights one one night we're in uh knoxville tennessee next night we're in memphis so knoxville there were neo-nazis literally apparently they were following me around the venue and other people intercepted on my behalf but i didn't see it you know the next day we're in memphis and there's a guy in the front row zeke heiling while hate breed's playing and martine from terror saw this dude, like he throws a drink in his face. They go around the venue. By the time they get around, there's like three or four dudes. They fucking jump this dude and they get into a fight with the security dude. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. So that was just- That's, a, that's anti-fascist action. Listen, this shit was real. Um, <laughs> even, but by the way, but I don't agree with that. 
I don't agree with those tactics. I don't think anyone, if that guy's racist, a black dude punched him. Uh, by the way, Martin didn't even hit him. They're, they're, they're white roadies. <laughs> He's like, yo, let me. He was like, let me get him, right? I don't think that's what gets, should happen. Well, I don't think anyone gets punched in the face and becomes less racist. I think it actually, I think it makes them double down. I think, I think people who but are they'll like, be a lot less likely to, to spew their racism in, racism in public if they get taught a lesson. Yeah, listen, that's true. That is, that is, that is definitely true. I just think most of those people, I think, are like in pain, you know, and I think they're lonely and I think they're scared. And I think uh, they're vulnerable. It's like people who, who, who join any cult, right? They probably were going through some really difficult time and they found a place where people would, here's a family, we got your back. And it's like, and you know, you know so- That's how they get you. Yeah, you know, so I, you know, I, in many ways, I think they're really pitiful people, you know? Well, there are a lot of people who are very- well, They're dangerous, they can be dangerous, but they're still pitiful at the, at the root of it, you know? But they are dangerous. There are a lot of very sad, you know, sad people who are going through really tough times who feel lonely that don't translate that into violent white supremacy. You know, you got options. Yeah. No, no, but like, look at, um, you know, any of these, you know, uh, Columbine, right? Or Dylan Roof, right? Mm-hmm. Like if someone could have intercepted those kids with some form of compassion and love and gave them what they needed, what they were lacking. I'm saying, I don't mean like a week before that you need to get, you need to get the head of that for years, right? Whatever dysfunction manifests in the individual for them to go to those lengths, um, I just don't think, you know, the, 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 the direct violent, like, I'm going to whoop your ass. Cause I, dude, I've seen it. I've been at hardcore shows, right. With like, uh, and dude, in the hardcore scene in Jersey, it, it like, it, I don't know if you remember that band Fury of five from Jersey. Mm-hmm. They were, I mean, these were the toughest dudes. They were like basically the New Jersey version of biohazard, but these dudes <laughs> were like, but they were known for just whooping everyone's ass, right? And if there were Nazis at the show, they would just whoop their ass. <laughs> like, and like, it was like just par, par for the course, you know, so. <laughs> I mean, the, the punk scene, the hardcore scene are so much better about that shit though. If the metal scene had taken that approach years ago, we wouldn't be dealing with so many Nazis now because they would know you're not welcome here. We don't want you, we don't fuck with you. Yeah. But we didn't and now we're still dealing with this shit all over the place. But anyway, but going back to, to Charlottesville, so was that moment because you were you were live tweeting? I read one of the articles you read, which was you wrote, which was amazing, and you know you felt mm-hmm. like you were there. Was that kind of the moment you kind of jumped on the scene and and started to kind of gain, gain a lot of notoriety from some of these more mainstream media outlets? Um, in terms of being of writing about more political topics and being more vocally anti-fascist in my work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, because I'd already been involved, like, in that kind of organizing for a couple of years before then. Like, I was down there with a big group of people from New York that we all drove down. We had an Airbnb. It was a whole, it was a whole coordinated effort. But um, So you were yeah. there to, to work? And that was part no, of it? No, I was, I was there. I was there. It was me. Gotcha. And then I was there, like, three feet away, like, jumped on the curb, thankfully. Otherwise, I would have gotten pulled onto the car like some of my friends. That's like so I was crazy. fucking there. It's yeah, I'm still all fucked up. <laughs> but yeah, after that, I came home. I was like, you know what? Like, I because you know my politics had been evolving and intensifying over those years anyway. But um, after that point, I was like, 
fuck this. I'm not going to pretend to like not be who I am. Like this is a very clear line in the sand kind of moment. And I, at that point, I had been in media long enough where I had like enough, like a little bit of a platform. And I was like, I need to use this. Like, cause it's so, it's easier for me to use that platform, be open about these things than other people who are not white ladies who work in the media. You know, there's a lot of people that would not feel as safe being as public because they'll get like, it'll, it'll cause more problems for them. So I tried to use that. And then it's been, I mean, I've definitely, uh, it hasn't been the easiest ride, but I wouldn't change it. I mean, it do you get it. a lot of harassment and, you know, cause you're, <laughs> Because you're like said, you're so vocal and you're on the front lines in terms of putting out a, a very distinctive point of view. I mean, are you are you a target for for those people now? Oh my god, yeah! I've had so many death threats. I've had uh, Tucker Carlson did a segment on me. That that's, was great. That's kind of a badge of honor. Oh my god! It was like part of me was like, this is fucking wild, and part of me was like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I lost- I lost- but I lost a job after that. So that's the thing. There are consequences to being as outspoken yeah. about leftist stuff. So do you ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. I think about this all the, all, all the time, and maybe, maybe this is kind of a... Uh an amorphous kind of way of looking at things but what's the on one hand you have journal being a journalist one hand you have being an opinion columnist and on the other hand you have being an activist right like are you all of that or do do any of those columns kind of undermine the other one i mean can you be a journalist but also be an activist is that, is yeah, that- I, I've never really held 
much. I've never really held much. Well, what do you consider the, yourself? Uh, what do you consider yourself? All of, all of the above. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Like in terms of journalism, there is this deeply rooted idea that objectivity is, you know, the be all and end all. You have to be objective. You just report the facts. You keep your your business out of it. But even that approach coming down to who is reporting the news, every person has a bias. Every person has an experience, you know, like just because the dominant voice in U.S. media for so long has been like the generic white guy who went to Yale, that does not reflect the experience of so many people, most people in this country. So why would that person's uh, viewpoint be seen as the norm or be, as seen as being objective? Um, I don't, I think, I don't really do that many straight news reporting pieces because I think they are boring because I can't. Yeah, I it's can't very much from your, you're like, you know, I guess. I'm a, re- I'm a reported op-ed kind of gal. That's what I'm saying. I feel like you're, you're almost, uh, I would say the, the, the anarchist uh, labor uh, enthusiast Hunter Thompson with cool piercings. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I feel like <laughs> and when I say and I say that just because it's everything's drenched in your personality and perspective. Right. I can only be who I am, you know? Like that's obviously someone who's flawed, but someone who is trying her best. And also, I mean, I'm not there are a lot of people who are much more qualified than I am to do the straight news reporting, the breaking news, like the in-depth like democratic republican political analysis. That's not my lane. I've always kind of carved out my own strange lane from when I was working in metals to what I'm working now. And I think that's honestly kind of without, you know, trying to send into hubris. I think that's kind of part of my appeal because I'm not a regular journalist. I'm not a regular writer. I'm the sum of everything that I am. And I, you know, it's, it's worked out really well in some ways and it's worked out really <laughs> poorly in other ways. Like I'm never going to be, uh, I don't think I'm going to get a CNN gig anytime soon. But I don't really want one. I'm well, I've pretty- seen, listen, I've seen, I mean, let's go through What do we got? I mean, just some of the ones I've written down. NPR. Oh, we had, work, we, NPR teen, broke up with me. Well, I'm just saying, these are places you, you work. <laughs> teen Vogue, New Republic, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Al Jazeera, Rolling Stone, Spin. I mean, you're in the game. I'm just saying, <laughs> you're in the game. And even though I'm maybe, a hustler, maybe maybe people. Well, I'm just saying, just just being able to have that kind of dexterity, and 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 keep mind up. I I would say most of this is post vice, correct? Yeah, in in a way, I mean, despite the obvious instability and financial worries that came with it, getting laid off from vice is one of the best things that ever happened in my career. Because yeah. vice, I was stuck in a little box. And I, I tried to kind of, you know, edge my way out of that box here and there, but it was really just creating more work for myself with no real benefit, just creating more content for the company and not, you know, it, it wasn't doing that much for me. I was actually, before I got laid off, this is, man, I'm still kind of mad about it. I was, go, I was in, the, in the middle of talking with them about kind of transitioning to doing more for the political side. I was going to... This is like for real. Six, I had a plan that in March, and I got laid off in February, in March, I was going to go freelance, but I was going to set up regular columns with Vice's political site. And I was going to transition into doing that because I was tired of just being a metal guy. And then obviously they laid me off, which is fine. Annoying, but fine. And um, yeah, so I was kind of already looking towards that transition before I ever left. And then once I was gone, and there was no reason for me not to pursue it. 
Yeah, so can you, exp- I, I need some explanation here because it seemed like right around the time uh, Trump was elected, you know, Teen Vogue became, uh, <laughs> I don't even know what the to van- call it. Vanguard of the revolution. Yeah, like what, <laughs> who, where did that come from? That just, first off, I didn't, I don't know, I don't, I don't subscribe to Vogue, so I'm not, I'm not up to date what they're doing. I, you know, maybe me neither. Maybe I was aware there was a Teen Vogue, <laughs> but what what is going on over there? Did, were you aware of this before you started working there, or do you know how they became this like rah rah uh, resistance rag? <laughs> so 2015, 2016, with the whole election, I think basically every publication was like, "Oh, we have to be a little more political now because people are paying attention." And in Teen Vogue's case, I. I, I'm not sure if I have the correct dates, but I'm sure right around that time they hired a new editor in chief and like got some new staff who were more interested in pursuing a more like social justice political direction. And I got involved with Teen Vogue in 2017 because I was just freelancing because Vice paid me like shit and I was bored. So I, I had written a couple of things to them about the prison industrial complex. Like I was doing a couple of things here and there, just cold emails. And then I got this column going because I, I emailed my editor being, uh, saying, hey, you should let me do a profile on Mother Jones, this legendary labor leader. I think your readers would like that. And they said, that sounds cool, but I don't think our readers really know what a union is. Can you do an explainer of that first? Hmm. And that I did. It went kind of like virally, I guess, as these things go. And then seeing how well that did led me to believe, well, I think I have some leverage. And I kind of soft bullied them into giving me a column and that's been that was like two years ago but in terms of like their broader focus it's i i know i i'm friendly with a lot of people that work there now like i think they they mean it you know it's not just a, a craven money grab but they're part of conde nast so some of it is a craven money grab you know like this younger gen z young millennial audience like is very political and very involved and it wants to read about what's happening it's not necessarily going to be satisfied with you know the the teen vogue of old which is more about like how to get boys to like you so they i think they're how do i get boys to like me i don't know i feel like you have a pretty big following <laughs> oh don't ask me i'm like other boys hate me i'm mean but <laughs> i think it was a case of like following a market demand and also realizing that they got this sort of media prestige by doing this and they kind of became a more credible quote unquote out, outlet because I mean the fact that they're Teen Vogue, which is, you know, a young women's publication, and people generally do not really pay attention to young women or think of them as being intellectual beings in many ways. The fact yeah. that Teen Vogue was putting out these kinds of op-eds, people were like, what is this? And it was kind of a perfect storm, but it seems to be working. So I I think I owe them I just filed something for them this morning so is, I'm, I'm doing my part <laughs> is it all online or is it also a print? yeah it's all online which is so funny when i get like angry boomers replying to me like i'm gonna i'm never gonna subscribe like bitch is on the internet like no one is <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i would you know feel, feel remiss not to kind of touch a little more on the labor movement and mm. your your activism there because yeah i, I you don't hear a, a lot about it that much any, anymore. You know, I was, I was just looking up the numbers. Um, in, in, people enrolled in a, in a union. 10%. 10%. And it was over 20% 1983. 
There's probably that's because of Reagan. Well, yeah, I know, but what I'm but what I'm saying is this is something that was more common when we had a more robust middle class, you know, essentially from the end of World War II up until Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, and and even, you know, as I was looking at some polls that even public approval and perception of, of unions has 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 waned skyrocketed no it's up to 66 percent it's now. going up it is going up okay okay um but you know but you know you, you you go back to certain eras of the country you know where you know gm was the biggest employer in the country and you know we had this robust industry now our biggest employers are our service uh it's walmart it's amazon um, you know, which clearly, you know, have not been allowed to, 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 to unionize and listen, and, and I'm, listen, I'm, I would say I'm left of, I'm, I'm left of center on most issues, but this is, but, but I always, you know, as I've gotten older, I try and like be as good faith in terms of trying to get a complete total understanding of each issue and evolve and not just like get set in some idea I had something when I was 25 and never move on it. You know, and I, I remember I was listening to, I forget which podcast, but it was talking about how they had the, uh, the Toyota, they had a Toyota factory somewhere in the, in, in, in the, in like Ohio or something. And they had, they brought the workers from Japan over to help them like increase their production. American factory, that documentary. I didn't watch the documentary, but I, wa- I listened to a podcast, I guess, about the same subject matter. Right. But a lot of what they were talking about was that you basically had these fat and happy American workers who were get- being like way overpaid or like not showing up and just doing a shitty job because they kind of weren't being held accountable. And a lot of that was due to those particular unions having too much power at that particular time. And so it made me just kind of zoom out and look at this issue as like, it's not good or bad, in terms of in its in its overall it's just that it can go bad in certain areas right like we, we look at for example the issues we're having with policing mm. and and you know systemic issues there but a big part of that is because of the power of police unions right so you can be pro union oh. but understand yeah. that certain unions can also create issues that kind of overlap with other issues that you care about. And that's, right. you know what I'm saying? So it's like this. Oh, I've, I've written a lot about police unions, actually. I'm actually involved in a movement to kick them out of the labor movement. That's been one of the my primary organizing projects in the past few months. But yeah, there's, I mean, unions are made up of people. And yeah. when people get power, some of them wield it wisely. Some of them do not. I think the fact that, I mean, it comes down to the problem with hierarchy. Like having anyone be in charge of other people, there's going to be inequality and imbalance there, which is why nobody should be in charge of anyone. That's a little plug for anarchism. But in We're, terms of the union, mm-hmm, go no, but even But even another caveat is you, know, you look at how much unions were involved with organized crime back in the 70s and all that stuff that, you know, probably did not hurt help its kind of public image in terms of like everything being on the up and up as well, you know? So there's a, I just think it's a complex issue in terms of like, and I don't know how that relates to where we are today. Um, but how do we, you know, because I, I do believe in this idea of, of workers having power, you know, and, but how do we 
get that like are we at a healthier place with that with 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 where unions as opposed to maybe they were 30 years ago and in in terms of some of these things that weren't as on the up and up so the labor movement is not a monolith yeah. i think like as you said there have been you know i mean the teamsters like the mine workers there's been some grimy shit that's going on yeah and i mean it was a few decades ago but like there's I think like individual unions all have their problems, but the idea of the union as a concept and as an organizing structure is incredibly important. Um, I would say, actually, this is something I've been, I guess, a part of slash been witnessing the past few years. There has been a much more progressive minded push within the movement to push towards more towards justice, more towards equity away from those, you know, those older problems. There are, and this is something that drives me nuts, because I'm actually, I'm a union official. I'm an elected member of my union's council. So we're, every month we have a meeting, and every month there's like a, a, a smaller group of us who are younger, more diverse, who are, have more experience in the current state of the industry, and then older folks who are maybe retired, have a lot more money than us, have been around longer, and it's just constantly butting heads about where we want to go, what our members need and like the future of the movement. Because I think for the younger generation, it's a lot more ideological and a lot more political. Um, back in you know the early 1900s, being in a union was an incredibly political act. And you know, that's where we had the eight hour day movement. That's where we had people getting, people dynamiting you know, railroad bosses. We had assessed- Union riots were some serious shit. Uh, the mine wars there's been labor history is so fucking cool that's why i'm writing a book about it but <laughs> there's been i think the the fact that labor big labor if you will is so embedded with the democratic party has really blunted the edge and the fact that there's been so is it much still love. is it still are they that connection still oh yeah persists? yeah oh yeah i mean the cop unions which i don't think are real unions and like the right-wing unions of, of that nature they you know, they cleave to the Republicans, but even those unions are at risk because of Republican policies like like right to work and, you know, chipping away at labor rights and labor laws. But all that to say, I lost my thread a little bit because I was thinking about dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> I think we really are at a crossroads though. We've been seeing it with the no cop unions movement. We've been seeing it with the way that the movement is dealing with the Black Lives Matter uprising. We've been seeing it with, you know, dealing with the fact that a couple of unions endorsed Donald Trump while the vast majority of the other ones endorsed Joe Biden. Neither of them are really great for the working class. You know, neither of them are going to get us where we need to be. This is the thing. Like, this, this reliance on the Democratic Party is really just is hobbling any kind of progress we can make towards organizing in a real material way. Because if we're just funding democratic politicians and hoping they maybe pass a law that helps us a little bit once every four years, we're not going to get anywhere. That's, and that's, you know, that's my view as like a very leftist union person, but I'm not the only person that sees things that way. And I think the next few years are going to be very interesting for the movement, especially seeing what this Biden administration gets up to if he actually does anything that he's promised, which as a politician, who's to say? Yeah, listen, I always say things with that. I mean, you could promise anything, but if you don't have the congressional support to do things, I mean, it's, it's, you're just, yeah. it's just a, it's a, it's a wish. It's a, it's a list of hopes in many ways, but. Right. It's nice uh, to have that hope after four years of fuck you, but hope doesn't put food on the table or, you know, get someone rehired after a discriminatory firing. Well, listen, I think the Democratic Party as a whole you know, where they've lost ground is with, you know, kind of the, 
the the lunch pail working class person that culturally feels distant from them because it feels more and more like an elitist party that represents you know see i think that's a big talking point but i think they've lost so much of the younger more diverse electorate too because they've refused to embrace anything resembling meaningful reform or change they're just trying to skate down the middle and that's not helping anybody well i mean i hear you but i think really this is a these next four this biden administration represents kind of just like you know what things ain't gonna change that much we're just kind of getting back to level right like a reset (laughs) yeah and then you know and all the all the big stuff worry about that down down the line but i do think certain things that i don't know if they'll be able to get passed you know like a public option that could change a lot of people's lives if you know they lose these senate seats that's probably not going to happen apparently he could do the 15 dollars minimum wage and canceling college debt i think those are things he can just like do yeah so if he fails to do that he's not worth Is the that paper some, i hear other not. people saying that i just i never heard him say that about the canceling i've seen debt. I've seen a lot of, well, I've seen, and great as all, but I've seen Chuck Schumer listing that as like yeah. one of the priorities for the first hundred days, as well as, you know, taking care of DACA recipients and overturning the Muslim which ban, which, which are real material things that need to be done. If he does them, good. Thanks, yeah. Uncle Joe. But the bare minimum is should not Listen, be enough. he's Grandpa Joe, not <laughs> Uncle point. Joe. Okay, he's Grandpa <laughs> Joe. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's, 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 think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the, the funny thing. So I just joined a union, with, I, the Screen Actors Guild. Oh, SAG-AFTRA. Yeah. And, That's amazing. Uh, You're, so, we're in like cohort with mine, the Writers Guild. Yeah. The- well, well, no, but it's, but it's, and the reason why I brought that up is because you look at Hollywood, right? You have a Director's Guild, a Writers Guild, an Actors Guild. And then we look at musicians who, sit around and you know and by the way no one bitches more than than broke ass metal metal dudes metal guys <laughs> oh, as you put it metal guys as you put yeah. it. i love that by the way i love the broad term metal guy for anyone who's just like is like a metal nerd I love yeah that. i feel like it's like a, I'm, I'm just reclaiming it as gender neutral just I like for, it. for my purposes listen as long, <laughs> if you if you give the approval then we can move forward you're you're running oh, you're God. running shit here <laughs> but uh <laughs> But no, but you know, and 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 I and I think it's it's a relevant thing to kind of talk about with with the music world because I don't know if there's any segment of the entertainment industry where there is such a gap between the haves and have-nots, and, mm. and I and I and I would describe and I, I you know and I describe this as you know I'm in a band that's one of the you know top streaming bands in the world and one of the top you know kind of all these metrics of you know bands it's we're in this this one the the one percent of one percent right kelly the, uh, oh so i'm still here i just clicked something weird okay yeah. I called, <laughs> I you, gonna... called you by your last name i don't know why i did that everyone does that all the time yeah. i do in fairness i do have three first names but i digress listen grim kim okay <laughs> Man, the college radio DJ name that will never, never leave me. You're so not grim. You're so cheery. I don't know. I don't expect you to come in here just with like in your black metal, like, like, uh, you know, corpse paint. And that didn't happen. Oh, God. There's a photo of me in corpse paint in this new book from Jeremy, Sha- Jeremy Saffer. Isn't that funny? 
Listen, I, <laughs> I got some. I got a couple corpse paint pictures of my, myself as well. It's a rite of passage. I was you in a black. I was in a black metal band. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I clicked away because I was going to send you a link. Um, just in terms of, because we're talking about musicians not being represented. There are musicians unions. There's one, the Allied Federation of Musicians, which isn't that useful for your purposes. But the link I was going to send you, the, it's a new effort called, uh, it's like the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, that there are, uh, there is the traditional musicians union, which doesn't really help people in this current moment. It's more geared towards symphony and like sort of that level of uh, like established employee Actual workers. musicians. Well, people that have like, they're like employees at a place instead yeah. of, you know, essentially freelance. But there's a new project that's been helmed by actually a bunch of cool musicians kind of in our milieu um, who are independent, dealing with streaming, dealing with all these issues called the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers that you should check out. Okay. Because it's true. There are so many inequities in this business. There are so many systemic problems that need to be addressed. And there are so many... There's, there's only so much you can do within the parameters of a union, but there is shit you can do. And there's even more you can do with collective power. And so organizing and working together is the first step to actually force the kind of change you need. And I just wanted you to know about that because I'm excited about it. Well, I, listen, I, I appreciate that. But we've had this shift in the economy of music, you know, between a physical world of of and there was a kind of business of how that works basically from you know 1950 to 2010 and then now things have become a streaming economy which but the brother the people at, at the top you know the post malones and the like are doing just fine from oh, streaming yeah. they're so, always going to be fine if you get like seven million streams that's they, that helps. they laugh at seven million. I mean, somebody, somebody oh, yeah, right. they're getting in the hundreds billions. Of, of, of millions. Well, it, especially when you go across platforms, it's in the billions. Yes. Mm. So, you know, so what you have you, this giant gap between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah, but 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 it's but it's even bigger now because I think in the physical when CDs and all that stuff was was happening, you were able to have a kind of mid mid level middle-class band, you know, blue-collar band, you know, sold 20,000 records that, you know, because of what they could do in the live realm, merchandise and things like that, they could get by. And because that 20,000 records, the amount of revenue you could get off that does not translate in what that means in a streaming mm. world. So that number... Pennies. Yeah. So it's this thing, and, I, and I've had a lot of conversations you know, on this show, kind of trying to trying to figure this out. And I, and I try and tell people, I'm like, you can't make things like that happen unless you get the people at the top to buy in. Unless you get Lady Gaga and 50 Cent and all these people. And But I'm like, but right now, there's no uh, incentive for them to do that because they're doing great. So why would, so, so I don't know, I just, it's funny because like Jamie Jossa is, he's so much invested in like, trying to create avenues for musicians to uh to make a living and get get their share of 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 the pie you know and and thinking about out out of the box but it's like it, i'm just in, in a lot of ways i don't even have a solution i'm more just dreaming i'm like wouldn't it be nice if we could come together like the actors and all kind of 
get together and be on the same page and fight for things, you know, like that's a union. Yeah. Well, I know, but you know, I don't, but the thing is it can't be like this little thing over here with like, these 10,000 musicians here. It no, you need, you need a mass movement. Exactly. You need like the kind of shit we saw back, back in the 1900s fighting for the eight hour workday. Hundreds and thousands of people in cities across the country were like, we've had enough of this shit. We're taking the streets till you give us what we want. And the music industry is obviously a little bit of a different context, but I mean, that, I mean, the only way we're going to get, anything close to equity or anything close to being fair is if like mass action is taken because like you said the people at the top don't care because they're fine and there used to be kind of a top middle and bottom but now it's just the top and the bottom and there's more people in the bottom than there are at the top so figuring out ways to exert that pressure and kind of organize around that issue is going to be really important i mean remember 360 deals like the music industry you, doesn't know what the fuck it's doing. What do you mean? Remember that's that they didn't go away. <laughs> well, well, nobody could tour anymore. So I was like, well, so much for all that. Yeah. Like I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. But that's a, but that's, that's but, but that's exactly my point. This is the exact type of moment where having a musicians union would have been helpful because mm. all of a sudden, how many musicians in the world who are relying on touring as their way to pay their bills? did everything just evaporate? And we still don't know when it's gonna come back. I'm fairly optimistic about summertime uh, based on you know the new information about the vaccines and how quick, mm. how long it'll take to implement. You know, there's even this, I just saw this article about like Ticketmaster is gonna be basically- Oh, some you're creepy gonna, big brother app. Oh, I'm by the way, oh, I'm all about it. You know, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Iron Man, okay? He's like, <laughs> what I said was we needed a suit of armor around the world. And you were worried about your precious little freedoms. That's me. I'm, I'm with, I'm with <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., all right? You know we need to do this shit like South Korea and Vietnams, all right? Fuck all that shit, all right? Contact oh tracing, y'all. Anyway. Honestly. Honestly, this stupid fucking country is like, oh, it hurts my freedom to wear a mask. Yeah. Fucking so I'm, I'm, I'm with it. And I know I'm in the, you know, I'm, I'm in the minority, but you know, I want I want, I want normal things to come back and this is the sacrifice we have to make. So anyway. Yeah. Live music. I mean, there's only so much you can do with a stream or with like a video or with selling t-shirts when there's like millions upon millions of people that are unemployed because of the epidemic. Like how are they going to buy your t-shirt? Kim, like I'm bored. I do all that <laughs> shit. I need to get out of this house. <laughs> I don't, I work from home. I need, I've been home for so long. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just want to be, you know, in like, you know, Columbus, Ohio on a Wednesday, you know, you know, make, taking a walk over to the grog shop, you know, fucking the, yeah. stop at the hibachi place around the corner. I remember Columbus. I remember, man. The no, grog shop is Cleveland. That's Cleveland. Apologies to Cleveland. Columbus, what's the one? Columbus is a cool one, too. I'm slipping. I've been spending too much time thinking about unions and politics. I'm losing my edge. Well, you have, I would, you know, you have Al Rosa. You have the Newport Music Hall. I feel like I never played it. And then we played this, Bad Wolves there's played a, this. There's this a cool, grimy song. one. I hope it's still there. I, mean, I hope, man, it's so sad that we're, we have to worry about, like, oh, I hope this this place will still be there when, when this is over, if this is over, you know, like we're going to lose so many venues and so many bands because people can't afford to do this shit. It's, 
I mean, in the UK and in other countries, there's funding for the arts. So there has yeah. been some support, but this is America. So you're on your own dot com. By the way, but one thing that was cool, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't know how, how you feel about Joe Biden, but they did do an ad that was just, uh, you know, <laughs> themed about musicians and live shows. And even if it's lip service, it's nice to even get a little lip service. Like, hey, we're not going to do anything for you, but we're thinking about you. you. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's basically the Democrats' entire strategy. Well, here's the thing. I'll take it, you know? No, people say, I just want to feel seen. representation matters man like and it, i mean yeah having even having someone that level would be like look we we know you're struggling we have very little intention of helping but we see you at least we know you exist i mean that's the level we're at with this government but yeah. at least having people know you exist is something because that's i mean live music has been one of the biggest outside of actual casualties obviously it's been one of the biggest metaphorical casualties of this whole terrible situation it's like music matters a lot matters to a lot of people. We have to find a way to keep it alive, but we also have to figure out how to keep millions of people alive. And those are both big questions that I am not smart enough to answer. Well, I, I'd say it goes even a little further than that for our community, because I, mm. I describe heavy metal as church for people without religion. Mm, I like um, that. Um, no, because it's, dude, if you, I remember, I, and I had this revelation one day, I, was, I, was, I was, went to a show, and the way the people at the front of the crowd were like, like just get, just like vibing and like getting the energy off the stage. And like, they were like losing themselves in, in, in the moment. It reminded me of what you would see at some like revival evangelist mm. church where people, they're just like, they're just in the moment. And by the way, and there's a reason why every organized religion has some component of music to their, uh, to their services because there's something connective where you kind of hone in on this thing collectively and kind of you you get outside of yourself and music helps you do that and you all connect whether that's we're all singing the same lyric or we're all humming the same melody or we're all moving together right we're all nodding our head there's something like very primal and elemental and and uh humanistic you know so so when you feeling exactly and the and i think it's it's not the same. I think things like like hip hop, for example, uh, and there's plenty of hip hop live shows, but hip hop is not as the culturally their live shows are not as connected to what the culture is about. But for metal and rock, the it's community everything. aspect, yeah, or even just like going to like a metal bar, right, or yeah, things like I've that. Missed- you know, like, like just being part of this very specific subculture that you have chosen to be a part of that matters so much to you and to you and a bunch of other weirdos around the world. Like you can just sit there and feel that, that connectivity that maybe you don't feel with anybody else because there's a lot of people that got into metal because they didn't feel like they fit in anywhere else. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like me a refuge. Too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's why we're still here. That's why we care so much. That's why I care so much, you know, like, Maybe I, some people think that I'm no fun or I'm trying to ruin it, but I love metal so much. It saved my life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for heavy metal. And I think, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. It's yeah, just making, I, you know, I, I want everyone to be able to feel that about it. That's why I care so much. I want every person, no matter who they are, unless they're a Nazi, to walk into a show and be like, I'm home. 
<laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I'm. I do the show Last Words, uh, which the I don't know if you know. We are the pit. The pit. dot com. That they, mm. they 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 run it. But uh, we were having this argument about Megadeth and Metallica, and I was just like, I was just telling them, I was like, yo. Guys, you don't understand how seriously I take this shit. Like, this is not a joke for me. Like, it's not. I'm like, we're arguing, but I will. You know, what I'm saying I will break a, a beer bottle and take it to your neck. You know, what I'm saying this is not. It's not just fun and games. Like, I mean, you've dedicated your whole life to this weird thing that no one else seems to understand. Like, you get very possessive and very territorial about it. You don't want anyone to to ruin it or take it away from you. Yeah. Well, so I actually had I've I've just two more questions for you. Mm. One, I see these uh you know, you I don't know if they're reviews or you just kind of like giving updates. A, how do you you I'll read one of these articles. I I've never heard of any of these bands. I don't know. I think <laughs> they're just playing in a in like a a cave in like Bushwick just for you. <laughs> um <laughs> oh, I miss a, that too. <laughs> where do you find <laughs> <laughs> like I'll show you the best cave the next time you come here. All right, oh, God. We, they have the best dirt on the floor and like pile of garbage and and a and like a skinny vegan with like dirt on her face. Um, oh my God! Now I just miss Brooklyn. I live in Philly now. So I don't oh shit. yeah, you're like I feel like you've like become like you're like you become Philly. I'm back. I full circled. I used to live here. I'm from Jersey. There's only so much you can. There's only so much time you can give New York City before you're like you know what? Fuck you too. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> you. Um. A, how do you find all of these obscure bands, and wh- and when do you find? How do you find the time to listen to all these records? Man, I feel like I've fallen off so much in the past year or so. Um, I, I mean, when it was my job, it was my job to like look at look up new bands and listen to music all day. That was that was pretty great. I mean, I do a lot of people will send me their music, which is great. Please do that if you play black metal and aren't a Nazi. Um, but also, I mean, just the act of digging, like when I was younger, like you would go to the UCD store and dig around or like go to the record store and dig around and just try to find something that looks cool. I still do that on places like Bandcamp. Like Bandcamp is actually a big one. I like to do, one of the things I like to do is go to like the, the trending metal page and then click back to like page 83 or like 37 to see like what's, what's hiding in the back that isn't getting any attention. And then just sit there and listen for a while. Like I don't, since this whole pandemic quarantine hellscape has sort of befallen us, I haven't listened to metal as much as I used to. I think, well, also because I'm, I'm living with my dude and he's like a skinhead oi boy, so he doesn't have much patience for riffs. So we, we kind of end up at bluegrass. That's the mm-hmm. middle ground. I'm like, listen, player, you need to <laughs> Black Sabbath to get your shit straight. He's, it's funny. It's actually, he's, it's funny you're talking about your upbringing. He's kind of in the same boat as you. Like he's half black and half white and he grew up in the punk scene, but in an urban environment, but he's, um, he has a lot more melanin. So he's had a different experience and he's, he was down there. Like we were in the same page when it comes to politics and, and all the things we're doing, but I've learned a lot from his perspective. He's like rally around the family pocket full of shells. Oh my God. We, I mean, we do live in Philly and you can have guns here, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> All that to say, yeah, man, I, I kind of miss spending tons and tons of time looking for new bands, but yeah, I've spent so much time listening to music that I know what I like. So I only yeah. need a few seconds to be like, okay, I'll spend an hour with this or like, oh no, thank you. And I'm, I'm a picky brat. So there's some things I just have no interest in anyway. It's yeah. I, I think that I'm, I'm pretty, 
very deliberate about the things I like. And they just happen to be, you know, annoying underground shit. Does that leave you time to listen to like old records and comfort kind mm. of comfort food music? Oh yeah, I listen to country music a lot. And yeah. like Bruce Springsteen and Bluegrass, like the stuff I grew up on, because I'm from the woods. Like that's like the first music I remember hearing. And I guess that's kind of like a, like I listen to a lot of that, and then my dude plays a lot of reggae because that's how he grew up. So we have a very chill household, which isn't what you would expect if you like saw us. Right on. Okay, one more question. Okay, we're, you know, d- despite the, uh, the 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 protesting of the kind of person who is in the office who shall not be named, uh, <laughs> we're looks looking like we're gonna have an, a new administration. Um, but possibly a mixed Congress. Uh, mm. What's your, you know, from, from your perspective and given that you have such a unique uh, political perspective, I mean, what do you think the next four years is going to look like? I mean, are, are you hopeful? Or are you just, is it more, is it just, here's the mainstream corporate dens, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, they're just as bad as these people. Is it, you know, where, where are you at with it? I mean, it's hard to be as bad as Nazis. That is a that is definitely a drop. Um, I, I mean, God, it sucks that it's such a question, right? Like, because like you said, like the Senate is all fucked up. Who knows if the, if the Democrats will be able to pass anything? You know, he can, Biden can do some executive orders, but the Supreme Court is all fucked up, so they might ruin that. Like there's, the, the idea of progress seems very foreign, but even the idea of like fixing so much of what was broken is also it almost seems like a long shot i think the interest i think the interesting progress will be coming from people that organize organizing outside that system and being like look there are some democrats who are worth a damn most of them aren't which ones can we push to do something useful like something that i'm looking forward to in terms of this administration which is really like one of the only reasons i bothered to vote for this fucking guy is um the fact that this is a little it's not as exciting, but the National Labor Relations Board is this entity that decides cases about basically people that want to unionize have to go through this this entity first. And right now it's stacked with a bunch of super anti-union lawyers that Trump put there. And if Biden comes in and, and replaces them with pro-union people that are actually pro-worker, it'll make it a lot easier for people to be represented and to organize in this country. And that's like a very small step, but it is impactful. I'm hoping that the Democrats make good on at least some of their promises. Like, there's so much they could do that they haven't done. And if they even attempt to do half of it, like, raise the minimum wage, fucking figure out a way for people to not be brutalized by ICE all the time, fucking deal with the fucking cops, deal with the fact that we're about to embark on a truly horrifying depression and the fact that nobody has health insurance and no one has any money in this country. Like, there's so many problems that they could fix if they had the gumption and the wherewithal and weren't terrified of alienating like imaginary Republican voters. Um, it's going to be a wild few years. I think we're going to see an increase in far right violence. I think that's something that's not going away. Like electing uh, a different old white guy isn't going to put the, the Nazis back in the box. They're already organizing. They're already preparing for something. Uh, things are going to stay scary and they're going to stay dangerous, but I would encourage people to get involved in their local communities, whether, I mean, you don't have to go full-blown anti-fascist. You don't have to hang out with your local anarchists, but you could, or get involved in, you know, 
helping out a local food bank or a mutual aid effort or housing justice, helping out the houseless population where you are. There's so much good that can be done outside of this government and outside of this electoral system. And that's the sort of things that give me hope. You know, they don't care about us. They're not going to protect us, but we can protect ourselves. So that's my, my small word of advice to whoever's listening who feels kind of hopeless and trapped. Like, you can do something. You don't have to wait for permission. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, Kim, thank you. Thank you so much. Where can the people find you if they want to read your work and see all your, your doings? I'm terminally online. So you can definitely find me on Twitter at Grim Kim. Shout out to WKDU back in the day. And I also have, um, I can never pronounce this fucking word, a Patreon? Patreon? Patreon. Patreon. I got one of those Johns. Patreon. Say it with me. Patreon. There you go. Feels very Medici. Patreon. But um, yeah, where I post like all this, all the stuff that I write ends up on there and then some other extra things too. And I'm working on a book that I still have to write, but it should be out in like 2022. Maybe we'll talk again before then. It, God knows what's going to happen between now and 2022. Um, yeah, but just don't Google me because there's a lot of like mean people on the internet who don't like me. So Well, I Googled you and all I saw was a lot of work from someone that is extremely prolific, prolific and really, you know, kind of making their mark and and all these different main, you know, like big time outlets. And I, and and listen, I'm, I'm really proud of everything you've done. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, you have so much, uh, you've garnered so much respect for me and been inspirational because like I said, I'm someone who has all these interests outside of, of music and tried to, done do some work to at least be taken seriously out, 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 outside of that and so you know hopefully you know like i said i, I just want to be like i said the uh the tom morello of metalcore all right just a guy that can you know riff it up but then get on bill maher and like you know talk some shit you know that's all that's it i feel like you're well on your way <laughs> we'll like <laughs> Tom Morello, he's fine. He's he's rich as hell. Like it's time yeah. for the new the new guard, the next well, generation. I get, here's the thing. I want to be I want to be rich like him too. Okay, <laughs> I got a hat. I got a hat. All right. I'm already. I'm. I feel like that's half the work. I got a hat and a guitar, <laughs> and I'm mixed. But I did not go to Harvard like him, so I'm not like mm. a genius, unfortunately. But I mean, uh, <laughs> life experience has got to count for something. I'm a college dropout. Shit. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Well, listen, Kim, thank you so much. This has been awesome. You take care and, uh, you know, we will, we will see each other soon. Yeah. Hopefully. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Anytime. Anytime. Take care. All right. Be safe out there. Bye-bye.
So that was the band Tribulation with their track Leviathans from their forthcoming album. It's not out yet. Entitled Where the Gloom Becomes Sound. That'll be out January on Metal Blade Records. And that, that just ended up in my email. Little advanced copy. And the funny thing is, I actually was going to play another song that I liked a little more than that song, even though that song was really cool. But then I realized it's not like out to the public yet. So, you know, Doc Coyle would have gotten in trouble for leaking tracks. <laughs> but this one is on Spotify, so I won't I won't be in trouble. But Kim and I were talking about black metal and I just, you know, this is like that black and roll. It's kind of a little bit, a little bit of black metal, a little bit of rock and roll. Excellent band from Sweden. Tribulation. Check them out. I'm a big fan. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Kim. I, I really appreciate that. I know how busy she is. And like I said, she's a, I have just so much respect for people that are making their way, especially in the metal world, into the more mainstream areas of journalism and media. And I have aspirations to do that at some point as well. And you know, she she gives me some hope, you know. Anyway, that was that was really great. And you know, just I t- kind of want to touch on something real quick because sometimes I'll listen to you know like Joe Rogan's podcast, right? And he'll have political people on left or right, and he kind of just tends to it seems a lot of times just agree who with whoever is on his show, and it's kind of frustrating sometimes because someone will say something that's not true or just a bad faith argument. And, you know, in many ways I can sympathize with them because I'll have a show, you know, I'll have Phil Labonte on here who is to the right of me, you know, or someone like Kim who's to the left of me. And I have to kind of strike that balance between offering my own perspective or challenging. But at the same point, this isn't a debate show. I'm not, and it's not primarily political. So I don't feel like my role is necessarily here to uh, battle anyone or or do that. It's it's really, I really wanted to hear her perspective on some of these things and get her viewpoint and learn more about that perspective. And same thing when I have Phil on, he, he gives me a libertarian perspective. And even if it's not where I land on either of those, it's important for me to just actually hear it from people directly instead of these kind of stereotypes that I think get created about people's politics because people are trying to win some debate instead of actually have a conversation. So I just want to let you guys know I'm, I'm aware of that. Uh, and I know on episodes like this where it does focus on more politics than a normal episode, it's just, you know, I, I wonder what you as the listener might think about that. So I'm trying to walk that line where I give my perspective and, but also definitely try and allow the guests to have, have this space to explain where they're coming from. And anyway, I thought it was great. Um, and I love that because there is so much, you know, you see at, at the end, we ended there kind of on that cross section between politics and metal and music and how we kind of figure all that out. So I think it worked out well and I, I really enjoyed it, but listen guys, I don't know if you care. My throat is jacked up right now. It's kind of hard to talk. So, you know, I'm pretty shot. You know, there's dot coil and there's shot coil. And I think this is shot coil. So with that, I'm going to bid you adieu and Mamba is out.
Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.